At this point, let's go go before God and, and ask him to use his word in our lives. Heavenly Father, uh, we, uh, we do need you. Uh, whether we know it or not, that is, a, that is true. And so part of the reason we're here is for you to convince us of that and to remind us of, of that which we do need and that we need what you will do in our lives. We need each other as we sit next to each other, as we talk and drink coffee and learn together. We need that aspect of our relationship with you to be a part of it. We need to to know that you are our Father and that you are with us. And this morning as we come to your words, would you open our eyes, would you continue to do this work in our lives that uh, day in and day out, um, sometimes we can see growth, sometimes we can't, but we know it's there. We can trust that you're accomplishing your plan because it's you that are doing it. We get to be a part of it. So use this time now in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, I was able to finish out chapter 3. And uh, we're moving on to this next section here. Uh, 1, 4, 1 through 7. And, and just a, again, a reminder where Paul has taken us as he writes to the church in these churches in Galatia. He's warning them. He's reminding them of the gospel. He wants them to see more clearly what the gospel is. It's not a return to the works of the law. It's not a return to those things that they left behind, that Christ came and fulfilled and completed that, and that now their lives will be characterized by faith in him and trusting in what he has done and accomplished. And any degree to which you return to that actually undermines the gospel and its effects in our lives. And so he's writing to them. As we come to this point, we really do come to a high point in the text. If you're going to flow, we're going to follow this. We're going to see that he leads us and he wants us to see something that is profound. And we've been hitting on it already throughout this service that the high point of God's salvation is his adopting, his desire to make sons and daughters of him. So for him in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4, this is the word of the Lord. I mean... That the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardian, or his owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's some text that you kind of just have to wade through. And I feel like up to this point in this, in chapter three, we've kind of had to wade through and kind of clear the way to figure out what exactly the message is for us and what it is that Paul is getting at. There are some texts as you come to, you just have to be held, behold. You have to look at it and you see. And I think this is one of those texts. We're going to try to unpack it, but there's more just to see and to look. I'm going to call us to look and see what does this mean and ask God to open our eyes in a fresh new way to see what it means to be a child of God. Paul wants us to get it because this is an image that he wants them to get because of the work that it will do in their lives. I love hiking, and one of my favorite parts of hiking is breaking out of 
below the tree line and coming above tree line. As you're in the trees, it's certainly pretty and it's nice, but you don't have much of a view and you're kind of caught there on the path and you can see things. But once you break above tree line and you begin to see the scope of where you are and the, the view takes in, you begin to take in and to see indeed where you are. You can orient yourself and you the grandeur of the creation around you. And I love stepping in and coming up above tree line. You can see where you're going. You can see where you are in that respect. And I think as we look at this passage that indeed we're kind of coming above tree line, that we're working through, we've worked through some of the foundational aspects of what it means to trust in Christ, not dependent upon the law. But in this passage, we break up. He wants us to see something. He wants to raise our eyes and to look around and see, if you will, the scope of God's salvation. He wants us to see what God has done, certainly what he has done in the past, but he wants us to look forward as well and understand what God is about. That the high point of God's salvation is seen as a, in his adoption of us as sons and daughters. This truth, this reality, this experience is incomprehensible. It's one that we need to wrap our brains around and see what does this really mean that the holy and sovereign God would take sinful, rebellious, hateful children of darkness and bring them into his family. That surely this scene, as we see what God has done, what he's accomplishing in salvation, will work against the effects of legalism. It will work against in any way that we want to earn our own standing before him. Any dutiful obedience that's driven by self-effort, any way that we want to merit our own standing or control God by what we bring to the table a view to what God is ultimately doing in salvation and adopting us as his children, it will begin to dismantle those tendencies that we have. And as we see this story rightly, it will indeed undermine this propensity towards legalism. Instead, out of that will grow gratitude, thankfulness for who he is and what he has done for us, appreciation for the freedom that he's brought us into, Allow us to live as patterned by him and empowered by him. And so that's where we're going today as we look at this. Real, real quickly, a, a recap of where we've come. And I've mentioned where Paul wants to bring us, where he's taken us from. He's looked at the law, the history of the law and its work in Israel and the life of a person who would be brought to Christ to reveal our need for it, to break us and reveal our need that for Christ ultimately that we can't fulfill it. And in the last section we looked at, there's this movement of Paul. He wants to move away from the the legal language of the law. He wants to move us out of the courtroom, and he wants to move us now into relational language of the family. Is what Christ has accomplished in the courtroom by acquitting us, of declaring us innocent and, and declaring us righteous. Now we want to see the full impact, the full reality of what he is accomplishing in us. That it's not just about justification. It's not just about the legal standing. It's now about our new position, our new status in him. And as we grow in our grasp and our, and our comprehension of this truth, the legs are cut out from underneath of our tendency towards legalism. As we look at this passage, as we look kind of at the scope of what God has done in, in salvation, there's three things that will be helpful for us that Paul writes. He wants them to see that ground us that provide a foundation for our lives. One is in the in result in the, in the effects of time. As he identifies Christ as coming in the fullness of time that grounds us in a real time and real place. The second one, as we see adoption as the high point of God's salvation, we find that that 
adoption, that act of God, that status that we now have, tethers us. It gives us a real place to land. It gives us a real identity that is immovable and unchangeable. So we see that this adoption is that. And the third thing we're going to see is that it's ground in experience of the presence of God's Spirit in our lives, bringing about our address to the Father. And so three things. We're bound in time. We're, we're tethered to that. We see that there's going to be benefits from understanding our realities, being an adopted son or daughter of God. And then also we're going to see that we're grounded in our experience as well. So we're going to look at those three things this morning. As Paul starts this passage, though, he continues on in verses 1 through 3 with his, his as he begins to talk about the law and its effects. And in this, this particular case, he talks about the heir that's awaiting, that's waiting for the day in which he will become heir of everything and the slave. And he says that essentially prior to that day, prior to that point that the father has appointed, that time that the heir and the slave are identical. There's no difference, and he's referring to that period of time before the law and under the law. But he says as he brings us now to the point of Christ to describe that, he talks about the, that these guardians and managers are this way, this, that, the, that the law is at work in kind of enslaving. And then this picture um, in verse 3 that we have is he says that in the same way that when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he's doing there, he says that the, that the law has the same kind of operation sometimes that the principles of the world around us, that, that anything that is driven by our own effort, used by the enemy, will only enslave. That the law operates in the same way anything else that we do that's a principle driven by human effort will, in the end, will only enslave, will not bring freedom. That only Christ brings freedom, and there will be more on that later because he picks up on that theme. But then when we come to verses 4 through 6, we see this section here very highly compressed. There's much in here that we want to see, and really we're going to break it down between 4, 5, and 6 as, as we look at this. And this first one is this, again, there's this, this picture that Paul wants them to see. It says, but in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent. But if you're doing your observation in scripture, what that as you come to that contrast, as you come to that point, should get your attention. You're at a point now where he's going to say something different. But instead of slavery, instead of the legalism, what we have now is God operating and God acting in time and space. And in the fullness of time, God acting. We find in this, from this phrase, that we are grounded in time. In the fullness of time, God came. The playwright and the director actor uh, Woody Allen said this, wrote this once. He said, I am plagued by doubts. What if everything is an illusion? What if nothing exists? And then in classic Woody Allen style, he follows it by saying, well, in that case, I definitely overpaid for my carpet. He asked some questions about, is this real? Is the world around us real? Are we just kind of floating in time and space? Is this all just an illusion? Paul tells us, God wants to say no, that in the fullness of time, God stepped in. This phrase, the beautiful phrase, the fullness, the, the, at just the right time, when time had reached its fullness, when history was pregnant, ready to give birth with the whole point of history in and of itself, God's plan had come to its fulfillment. The very centerpiece of history, the very centerpiece of God's plan is seen in this fullness, this divinely ordained plan of God. That at this just right time, 
God shows up in the form of a man. That Christ, he sent his son. Of course, we can look at this and and in hindsight, look back and see providentially what God had done in the fullness of time to prepare everything for Christ to come around that. And many have looked and identified the different aspects of the culture of the time that would we can look to and see as preparation for Christ. We can see the, the peace that came as a result of Rome's power that was there, that there was a relative peace in the Roman Empire as Christ showed up. We can also see there was a road system that was present. We can see as well a common language that was used. Many have also noted that there's, there was kind of a movement away from a discontent with even the Greek and Roman gods of the common person. So we have a, the perfect time and culture perfect time ordained by God that Christ would show up, that he would come into time and space and be sent by God himself. And so for us, what it means is that history has a purpose, that it has direction and has meaning. We're not floating around in some sort of cyclical randomness, that history is more than just cyclical. It has meaning. It has directions. It's it's teleological, has an end, it has a design that God is doing something in and through it. And Christ is at the very center of that work. It's the reference point that all their points find their reference in. That we, as we sit here today in 2013, that we're referenced to what he has done. That, that our lives are tied to him. That time in which we live is one that, that he has established and is still working out his plan. That Christ has come, but he will come again. And so our time has meaning. Our days have meaning. We don't have to wonder if it's just an illusion. We don't have to wonder if it's just purely cyclical and it's just kind of like the groundhog day thing, right? Wake up and it's just another day over and over and over again. No, because God sent his son in the fullness of time, we recognize that time has meaning. God has established that. And we are tethered in that way to something that's real, a reference point. But Paul, as he sees that, he wants him to see that, that there is, in the fullness of time, God acted that he wants to put on display here the scope of God's creation or salvation, the scope of what he has done, what he's accomplished. And he wants to draw a line for us. It's kind of a flow chart of steps that are involved that are in that, but that he wants to show as the high point adoption. And he ends this phrase, this sentence with, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so we have a, a list of things that God has done, that God has accomplished that as we see the scope of his salvation, we see the person and we see the work of Christ here in these phrases. In verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption. His son, we see this list, we see this flow of, of what God has done in, in Christ and what's interesting, as you look at this list, much could be impacted. Let me just take a moment to do it. We see two things at work here. We see the person of Christ. We see who he was. And we see his actions both displayed here. Who he was and what he did. What he had accomplished. And the two are connected. The two are intertwined together. And by the way, it's interesting, if you look back at history, why the early church fathers were so adamant at preserving the doctrine of Christ and understanding who he was because our understanding of salvation and what he had accomplished was directly tied to who he was. To diminish or dilute his person or his deity in any way would be to dilute the work that he has done. And so Paul wants to put on display, wants us to see these truths. We see he's God's son. He is deity. 
We see that he is born of a woman, that he is hum- his humanity there is, is clear, fully God, fully man. We see that he is born under the law, and this is the, the point that Paul has been making all along, that he came to fulfill the law. He came as a representative for us, to represent us by fulfilling the law completely, to redeem those who were under the law, that he would rescue us from the slavery of the law by fully completing it, by fully living it out, the righteous life that was there, that he would redeem and transfer us from slavery to freedom. And then we have this high point, as he says, he wants us to get this point so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's interesting as you read through through Paul's letters is the number of times he uses this language. And here in Galatians, we have the first time What Paul is doing, he's employing a new image. He's talked about justification. He's talked about this legal righteousness. But he says, but it's more than that, guys. It's so much more than you realize. I want you to see this view. And he uses this image of adoption, this image of sonship, that they would catch that, this legal transfer into a family. It was not an uncommon practice in the Roman day that that there would be adoption that a master of a house who would need an heir who wouldn't have would adopt a son to be the heir of all that he had. They would adopt them into the family for that reason, to be able to transfer the, the inheritance on to someone else, that there would be an heir that's there. However, adoption is a concept that's virtually non-existent in the Old Testament. There's Israel who is the firstborn son, but... To the Jewish mind, this idea that that God would adopt someone outside the family into his own was an unthinkable idea. It would blow their minds as Paul would begin to use this idea, this picture of God adopting Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, female into his family. That this would be a thought that would push the envelope, as it were, for their understanding of what God would do in salvation And so at this point, maybe it's wise for me just to to mention as we talk about adoption, as we talk about the fatherhood of God, that certainly we understand it to be a sensitive topic for many of us. Because indeed our view of God is, is real, and it's seen through the lens of the view of our own father. And so we need to understand as we as we as I say this, that everything that our father was not our God will be, that everything that we wish our Father were, our Heavenly Father is, all that we really desire to find, we will find in Him, that even the best fathers fail, but God will not, that He is perfect, He does it just right, and His process of adoption is one fully known, one that He will accomplish, one that He does. And so the challenge for us as we look through this lens of our own experiences, we see God as our Father. It's valid. It's real that we work through that. But we need to look and ask Him for new eyes to see beyond just what we've experienced, truly to understand and see Him as the Father that we really need, to appreciate the fathers that we have in front of us, but to see that our greatest need is to have Him as our Father, and to find what's ultimately true about Him and to live in light of that, that that would be that reality that really grounds us, that we look to Him, that that would drive us and, and move us to live in light of who He is. And so what Paul wants to do is he, is he paints this picture of adoption for us. He paints it as the highest, the most beautiful expression of God's 
work of salvation. He does it because it's God's intentions. His intention all along is that he would do this. The other aspects that we talk about, justification, redemption, all those things lead to ultimately this end. And that, I think, tells us something. As God, That's his intentions. It reveals something about our need. That our greatest need as we have forgiveness of sins is, is great, but we need something more. The greatest need is not just to be rescued from the slavery of sin. It's more than that. It's not just to be removed from the wrath of God. We need that. But what we most need is to be found in his family, to be found, to find him as our father. That is our greatest and our deepest need. There are various aspects of salvation. I've hinted at them. Sinclair Ferguson talks about these different facets of the Christian life in this way. He says this, he writes this in his book, The Christian Life. He says, when the light of the gospel passes through the prism of biblical language, we find that it is broken up into many constituent parts, each with its own beauty and glory. When the light of the gospel passes through biblical language, it's like light that is refracted through that prism. And there's many different hues, different shades of that light that we see of the gospel. And he says that this, there's many different ones, justification, redemption, propitiation. Adoption, though, is to be seen as the highest, to receive the full rights of sons, the privileges of a son or a daughter. See, Paul's not satisfied with just leaving with the imagery up to this point of justification. As high and as important as that is, he wants to go further. He wants them to see the high point being adoption, that fully depraved, guilty, depraved, enslaved, hateful children of darkness are pardoned and freed and cleansed and transformed in their hearts to make us into the very children of God. J.I. Packer puts it like this, probably as well as I came across in his book, Knowing God, a chapter called Sons of God, just a, a paragraph here I'd like to read for us. As he compares justification and uh, this adoption, he says, And justification is a primary blessing, so it is a fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests upon it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is a more exalted. Justification is a forensic, a legal idea conceived in terms of law, and viewing God as judge. In justification, God, God declares the penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve. But Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death on their place, their place in the cross. This free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. By contrast, this, now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He's established us as his children and, and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God as the judge is a great thing, to be, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. 
And so a packer gives us this picture of the two and says we don't want to miss what God has done for us, that he has taken us, taken us. He has declared us innocent because of Christ, but he has brought us into his family. What he has done, though, as we look at this, he's done this not reluctantly. He has done this according to his plan, according to our need, and according to full knowledge of what we need. He knows exactly what we need. He is not ignorant of our needs as he brings us to his household. And he has promised to provide everything we need internally and externally to move us and to make us into children who be formed into the very, very image of his son. So as Paul uses this imagery of adoption, it's significant for them, for those in Galatians, the church is here because a couple of things I mentioned already before, that for them he's wanting to compare and put Jew and Gentile on the same page. Everybody's in need of the same work of adoption. No one's in, everyone's out. Everyone needs this process, this, this adoption that only God can bring. So he wants them to see that no matter what category you might find yourself in, you're in the same need before him. But then secondly, he takes a step further, our realization of our need of our helplessness, our need of our hopelessness. That adoption as an idea goes a little bit further in revealing that God, if you will, wants to consolidate all of his power and his action in the realm of his initiative, his prerogative. He wants to be the one to be the active party here of which we find nothing we can do. That, that this picture of adoption puts us in a position in which if it isn't his initiative by which we will be adopted, then we are hopeless. Unless he does something, adoption is a an illusion for us. There's nothing we can do to earn it unless we might think that in the realm of legal works righteousness, there's something I can do to better myself or to make myself better before God. Paul wants them to see that this imagery of adoption goes a step further. Unless God initiates to adopt, there is nothing we can do. Unless he steps into time and space to bring about that action, to move towards us, we are hopeless. The only thing that we can bring and contribute is our need and our sin. And so he uses this imagery. It's significant for them. It's significant for us. And certainly as we see this view, the high point of our adoption, it's self-worthy of, of praise and thanksgiving and great gratitude. But there's, there's a blessing. There's something else that's a, that comes with it as we understand the, the status, the, the position that we have as a son, as a daughter of God. Just as understanding has uh, Christ broke into time, it, it roots us in time. So as we understand our status, our objective position in Christ, that we are a son or a daughter of God, it provides something for us. As we see this high point, it grounds us in a different way. And I think as we understand that as a believer, throughout our lives, we see that it grounds us in this way. And it answers one of the most significant questions that every human being asks. It answers one of the most significant questions that we ask. And that's the question, who am I and whose am I? Who am I? It answers, it gets at the point of our identity. Who am I ultimately and what is my identity ultimately tied to? Something that can be taken away, something that can escape, something that's impermanent or something that is transcendent, something that is permanent, something that will not go away. And so he says, I want you to see that your reality, this identity is tied 
to this status, this position, this reality of being a son, being a daughter of God. And there's many, days, many ways that we might answer the question, who am I? Lots of categories that we, could, we would answer that question by and in, and so-and-so's son, so-and-so's daughter's daughter. I have this job. I do this kind of work. Certainly our culture would like to identify us or marketing folks in certain kinds of possessions or, pos- or certain kinds of uh, services or things that, that kind of say, this is who I am and this is who I'm not. You know, we were, have bumper stickers on a car that identify us in certain kinds of ways, all those kinds of things, nothing wrong with any of those things. But if that becomes the ultimate thing that we tie ourselves to, our ultimate identity, certainly those things can go away. I'm a runner. I enjoy running. And so, of course, you're in little running circles and you're talking with folks about what you're running and how far do you go? Do you do a full marathon? Do you do a 50K? Do you do 100 miles? Do you just do a measly 5K? What do, what do you do? What, what, what's your category? What do you run? And then it's your times and then it's your age group and all those things kind of identify you in some way, shape, or form. But the problem is, no matter what kind of status, what thing we might want to identify us with, eventually what we want is to find approval in that place. We look to those things that identify us to to find approval in who we are. And in the end, we want to say, I am somebody. See, I have a 26.2 sticker on the back of my car. I am somebody. Or I have this car. Or I can do this. Or I have this job. Or I have this house. I am somebody. And the world around us wants to look to those things and say, you are somebody, you're identified by those things. But God says, no, you need to be identified by something that's not movable, something that's not changeable. Those are fine things to describe you. But if that truly is the core and the root of your identity, it's going to go away. And it really doesn't mean anything. In the movie Chariots of Fire, one of my favorite movies, in the movie, the character Harold Abrams, who is the Jewish runner who, who ran just merely because he, he, he had to win. And everything about his life was about winning. He had come to the very point, the very pinnacle of the point where he's going to run his heat in the 100 meters at the, the uh, Paris Olympics. And he's there. And just before the event, the, these words he says, I have 100 meters to justify my entire existence. That his whole identity had been rooted and grounded in one activity. And he was fearful that indeed he would prove that it was unsuccessful, that his identity was grounded in the wrong things. And so for the Christian, this truth is grounded in our, in our truest identity is rooted in Christ, our identity as a son, as a daughter of God, that it identifies who we are and we don't have to look to those things to truly uphold us. There's many more implications, certainly, as we understand adoption, but that's one of the most significant ones as we... We ask the question, who am I? And it gives us an answer that doesn't change. Paul goes on, though. He wants us to see how we're grounded in time. Here we see we're grounded. Our identity is rooted in, in the, the objective reality of being a child of God, that that is true. But he goes on. He wants us to see the, the relationship of who we are in our experience. And in verse 6, he says, And because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God describes this doctrine of adoption, this picture, this experience of adoption in these terms of great intimacy, this profound intimacy with 
the Father. And what I'm saying here and what he wants us to see is that the way we experience our adoption is in and through this prayer. It's in and through this cry that the Spirit gives us these words, Abba, Father. And it's in our address to the Father, identification with him. And it's in that that is a witness to our identity. That's the way we experience our adoption. That our cry, Abba, Father, describes the deepest expression and the clearest articulation of the Christian. It's rooted in relationship. It's rooted in, in seeing him as father and addressing him as father. And it's the greatest blessing and benefit that the spirit indwelling us can bring to us is the experience of God as father. And this cry gives evidence to that. If I could say it like this, if verses four and five point to the objective reality, the status of sonship, the status of adoption, that's a real thing that this shows us the experience of that real thing. What does it really mean? What does it look like? How do we experience our adoption as a Christian? How do we experience our relationship with God? It's in and through this prayer. We can provide, and for four and five, provide something that we can claim, but this provides something that we can appropriate. I'll explain that in just a moment. So the question is, how does this experience of adoption, what do we do with this? How do we live this out? How do we translate the reality being adopted by God into our experience day in and day out? Well, let me just tell you this. As I've worked through this passage, up to this point, I'm really comfortable talking about because it can kind of speak in objective terms. But the, the minute I begin to talk about experiences or some subjective experience that we have, I'm, I'm a little less comfortable Maybe as a Presbyterian, maybe as a male, I don't know, but I'm not sure what to do about my experience, my feelings with this passage. But Paul wants us to, to catch the picture of intimacy, the depth of experience that one who is adopted has, and it's real. Now, it's not necessarily just a, a feeling, although feelings will accompany this. It is an experience of the reality. And so we want to ask the question, what does that mean for us? We need to understand in a real way this intimacy that's available to us. It's provided by our real status that we can claim and look to the work of God's Spirit in our lives. And so he wants us to see this, and he moves beyond just the objective to the subjective, to the experiential, this cry, Abba, Father. And we see, of course, the work of the Son and the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here, where the the Father adopts, the Son comes and makes a way for that. He provides the, the work for that adoption, and the Spirit comes, and he applies it. He appropriates the reality, the truth that we're now adopted into our lives. That the Spirit's action to, to place upon our lips these words of a Father, this title, this address of the Father. He wants us to see that. And so Paul points to this. And he says that the Son, the Spirit of the Son in our hearts is evidenced by crying this, this title, Abba Father. And you might be familiar with this. The two words, the Aramaic term is Abba. It comes from the, really the, the first syllables that come out of the mouth of an infant as he addresses a, a parent, a father, it's Abba. And then father being that, that Greek term. We have both of them here, this, this, this cry for God as, as father. It's a term of intimacy. Christ has uh, taught us to use this title in his prayer, Father, who art in heaven, Abba, is there. 
Tim Keller says as he talks about this, this title, he's, he says it like this, which is helpful. It's helpful for me this week as I kind of tried to understand these things. He says essentially this term gets at the natural trust that a child has, that a child exercises towards a parent. It's the natural response that a child has towards a parent. You've been there. You've seen a child if you don't have one. When they fall, when they scrape their knee, when they bump their head, when they bump into something, what's the first thing that comes out of their mouth? What's the first thing that they say? What's the most natural words on their lips? Daddy, mommy. Now, you don't have to train them, right? You don't have to say, okay, now, you know, when you're hurt, you need to cry out my name. I want you to, I want you to do that. Let's work on this now. Let's practice it. No, it's natural. It comes natural to their lips that they would cry out. And in the crying out, it identifies them. It ties them to a person. It binds them to a person. And it says, that's real. My relationship is real. And my cry gives evidence to my identity. gives evidence to who I am and whose I am. And Paul says, do you see this? This crying is evidence to this reality, this fact that we are His this is what's being described. This, this cry here is, a, is referring to a loud cry, a cry of, of anguish, a cry of, of pain. This is used when Christ was on the cross, when he cried out his, this cry to the Father. And so we, in and through our experiences of life, cry out to him. This intimacy, however, is not pictured in the absence of difficulties, okay? This intimacy isn't some sort of kind of tranquil tranquil kind of environment. It's exactly the opposite of that. Sinclair Ferguson writes this about this particular experience, this cry. He says it's sometimes suggested that the evidence of the presence of the spirit of adoption and assurance he brings will be a spirit of tranquil resting in the presence of God. No doubt there's such a blessing brought to us by the Spirit, but it is not such an experience that's being described here. The picture is not that of a believer resting quietly in his father's arms in childlike faith, but of the child who has tripped and fallen, crying out in pain, Daddy, Daddy. That cry is the mark of the presence of the Spirit of adoption, not least because it shows that in the time of need it is towards our Father in heaven that we look. What's it tell us? It tells us that our experience of adoption is most pronounced when? In our cries. In our times when a cry is necessary. In our experiences in our life where all we can do is cry out. When all we can do is look to him and and call out his name and identify him as our father and tie ourselves to this reality of being his. That great reality that the Spirit himself puts these words upon our lips as we experience him in this way. I have another set of notes here. So here it is. Sorry. And the question is, this, this appropriation, this experience of adoption as it's seen in this cry, at what point and when do we cry? And we see throughout our lives that it gives evidence to that as we look at our own lives and we find the sin that's present there. We see the the damage and the danger of our own sin and temptation to that. And we cry out and we say, God, will you save me? Father, will you save me even from myself? And we find that in this identity that it's not just tied to 
what we have done. It's not just tied to our sin. It's tied ultimately to being his and that he will promise to be at work in our lives to subdue that sin for us to grow in the midst of that as well. We look around us and we, we find the sin of others that we experience and we cry out and say, Father, will you save me? Will you rescue me? Will you heal me? We look at the world around us and the fallen nature of it. It's real and it's there. We cry out and we say, would you be our father in these situations? We look at our loneliness, our disappointment, our sorrow that is real around us. Those situations that we wish were not like they were. And the very cry of Abba, Father, out to him gives evidence, the reality that he is there, that he will listen to us. And as we do, we experience in real ways our adoption. It's real. And this cry is a witness of God's spirit in and through us. We experience in those times of pain, those times of sorrow. It's not a feeling. And again, lest we think this experience is an apprehension. It's a profound truth that I know whose I am. And I know that somebody is listening, that my, I have someone to cry to and someone who will hear my cry, that it will not go unnoticed. This is that which reveals whose we are. As we grow in Christ, and there's three things I want to conclude as we think about our identities, we think about this experience of the Spirit at work in our lives in and through this cry, Abba, Father, in those moments when we most need to go to Him and pray to Him and cast our needs upon Him. First of all, our growth will always involve this cry. Our growth will always involve this. And what does that say about what God will bring into our lives? That there's something to cry about. And there's something to cry to. That in and through those moments and those seasons of our lives, when that's all we can do is cry out, that it's in and through that growth is coming, and growth will not come apart from that. But secondly, we will never grow beyond this childlike cry. We won't grow beyond it. It's not like we'll get a different name or a different title or some sort of advanced language. It will always be father. It will always be daddy. It will always be that intimate relationship and tied to him. This term was used certainly by children, but it was used by all in, 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 in addressing in intimacy those, the father that they would. And so we will never grow beyond it. And finally... Uh, to, to those who might struggle with this being a natural cry, to those who would say, I don't know if that's the natural response that I have. I'm not sure that the words on my lips in the midst of those situations and seasons of my life are first to turn to God. My words to you, I think what Paul would say and would call us to do, that if this cry doesn't come naturally to our lips, then pray that it does. Pray that the Spirit of God Himself would indwell us, would come and rest within us, that He would transform our minds and our hearts so much so that the natural response in the midst of those pains and sufferings and our own sin would be to cry out to Him and not to run to anything else besides Him. That in that we grow, in that we find that He shapes us into the form of His Son, that our natural response as a child would be to cry out to Him, that we would find in that cry Our identity is tied and bound to him, and we'd find that inbound in him, that we're bound in time and place, that he's at work in and through all of our circumstances to providentially bring about his plan for us. As Paul raises our eyes to lift above the tree line to see the scope of his salvation, he wants to see 
these things that were ground in time, that we, by the adoption being this highest point, that we're able to, to rest our identity in that at the end of the day, that our cry reveals whose we really are and that we have great hope in that because he hears and he responds to bring about his work, to finish his plan in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your children. Whether it seems that way or not, whether our experience might point to that in any given moment, it is as real as we stand before you, as we have trusted in you. And I pray that those who have would live out and experience the reality of that. Please do that. Place your spirit in our lives. For those who wonder about that truth, about that objective reality of being your child, of having trusted in you, of having these words come naturally to their lips, would you be at work in their lives? But regardless for all of us, that as we are made in the image of your son, that, that we would cry out to you as father and rest in the reality of who you are. Father, we have many needs as a congregation and present to you several this morning and certainly many others that I can to pray for Lorraine Canestra. Continue to pray for her as she's back in the hospital that you would heal her. I pray for Mem McGrogan and pray for uh, Dana McLeod, David Velasquez's um, sister-in-law, and you'd be with her in this cancer treatment. Continue to walk with each one of us and give us um, the words to say to address you in all of our moments. Father, I pray and are grateful for little Bridget Noel Brown, daughter to Doug and Laura Brown that uh, born last night. Grateful for a healthy delivery and healthy mom and, and, and child and be with them now as they raise her. Pray for Bill and Karen as they in Colorado and keep them safe and refresh them and encourage them as they return back this week for take their role in ministry here to lead this congregation. Father, continue to, to send us out. We think of missionaries and that we have a chance to send out. I think of the um, the, the, the trip that goes to St. Louis to, or to, to um, Mexico. I think of teams that are sent around the world and our missionaries that we support. I pray that you would help us as a congregation to be behind them. Um, help us to embrace the gospel. Help us to live it out to a world that needs to hear it. Uh, Father, go with us now as your children. Root us in these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.